everyone. I'm your host, Andre Darmanin, welcoming you to another exciting episode of the Global Conversations webcast. Today, we're diving into the deep waters of global LGBTQ plus inclusion, and I'm thrilled, so thrilled to be doing that with none other than Michael Bach. With a laugh that lights up a room and a personality as colorful as Michael's, he is far from your usual diversity inclusivity expert. If your diversity is your strength, in Michael's own words, inclusion is your superpower. Michael is a highly acclaimed thought leader, not only in Canada, but worldwide. Michael has devoted nearly two decades to promote inclusion, diversity, equity, and accessibility in the professional arena. He's a dynamic founder of the Canadian Center for Diversity and Inclusion and has his fingerprints on some of the most successful EDI initiatives in top-tiered firms like KPMG, for example. His accolades include many, including the Women of Influence's Canadian Diversity Champions and the Inspire's LGBTQ Person of the Year. And more recently, CIO Views Magazine Michael uh, named Michael one of the most 10 most influential DIE leaders, revamping the future uh, in 2023. He's a certified pro, literally holding a, pro, uh, a, post a postgraduate certificate in diversity management from Cornell. And as many of us all know in this profession, he is the author of Alphabet Soup, the, the Essential Guide to LGBTQ2 Plus Inclusion at Work, which is already creating ripples. Fasten your seatbelts and let's put our hands together to welcome or virtual hands together, I should say, to welcome Michael to the webcast. Michael, welcome. Thanks so much, Andre. It's good to, to be here. And thanks for that introduction. It's a bit yeah, embarrassing, no, but I embarrassing. appreciate it. No, come well, on. You know, <laughs> you just came from a, you just came from a conference in, in the States. I mean, I did. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, you can tell us more about that um, in your, you know, in your introduction, but yeah, let, let's just, you know, besides what I've mentioned, you know, tell tell the audience who you are, what you're all about, and what got you to this point. Yeah, so I'm an Aquarius. I like long walks on the beach. No, um, <laughs> I, uh, you know, you know, my name is Michael Bach. My pronouns are he, him, his. I have been doing this work for uh, nearly 20 years. Um, got into it quite by accident. Um, a large part of my professional career was in IT. I was working in uh, one of the advisory services practices at KPMG and with a group of people had the opportunity to create uh, the firm's employee resource group for the 2S LGBTQI plus community. And that got me the attention of the CEO, which got me the attention of the chief HR officer. And I said, you know, if we're serious about diversity, we need full-time resources and I want that job. And I ended up writing the business case for the creation of a role in diversity, built up a team, led it for seven years. I was also the deputy chief diversity officer for KPMG globally. Incredible journey. Um, when I started, didn't have a clue what I was doing. Uh, but there wasn't a school for me to go to. It wasn't like it was, oh, here, go get your bachelor's degree in diversity management. It still doesn't exist, and it's been nearly yeah. 20 years. Um, so that's, I kind of fell into it, but it was important to me because I've actually been doing what we now call diversity and inclusion work for 35 years um, with a lot with the 2S LGBTQI plus communities, I came out at a very young age and, and have been very active in, 
in that community as well as women, people with disabilities, in uh, the newcomer population. So I've I'd always been doing it, but it wasn't a job anyone paid you for. Mm -hmm. That's what you did as a volunteer. And then you went and, you know, worked on Bay Street for some big company and made money. Uh, so to be able to put those two things together has just been a, c a complete blessing. Yeah. And, you know, so in your journey, um, you know, what is what is something that people would not normally know about you? I was debating what to share on this one. Um, and I think the one that I will share is that I'm actually a, I'm an Aquarius. a recovered actor. Right. I'm an Aquarius. Um, no, I'm a recovered actor. I oh, was really? a child actor. Yeah, I was a child actor. I've done some really horrible television. Okay. Um, thank you, CBC. Um, <laughs> I, you know, I worked actually off and on uh, up until I was about 35 and uh, finally hung up my my heels to uh to go full-time into largely into the diversity work because it was so i was so passionate about it but yeah i'm you can find me on imdb i think i did come across that never mind but i i, I was like <laughs> okay hold on is this the same michael that's on I, imdb and lo and behold it's you. there's no photo there's no photo yeah. thankfully um and if there was it would be a very old headshot where i had more hair on my head and Less fat everywhere else. <laughs> now I got to go find what these shows are because now I'm really curious. Oh, some delightful <laughs> stuff. And it's CBC from back in the day. So we all know how the programming was then, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, my gosh. So let's, um, let's go right off the bat here. Um, you know, in Canada, as you mentioned uh, earlier in the, in the talk, you, we talked about 2SLGBTQS. Uh, plus community, but everywhere else talks about it differently. So, you know, especially globally, and we just basically sh shortened it to LGBTQ plus. So why is it so different globally? This is what mm -hmm. I'm really curious about. Yeah, well, every country is on their own journey mm -hmm. around um, LGBTQ plus inclusion. Mm -hmm. um, in Canada, uh, we have made the conscious choice to include two or two S in the initialism mm -hmm. uh, to include people who are indigenous and also members of the LGBTQ plus community. And most recently, the I for intersex has started to appear in the initialism, largely because it kind of stands alone. It's not a sexual orientation or a gender or gender identity. It is a sex assignment. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, that that's a choice that that some people in Canada have made. But also understand that this is not universally used. If you for yeah. every person you ask, you're going to get a different answer. The other layer to this is it in 65 countries, it is illegal to be gay. 45 countries, it's illegal to be a lesbian. 41, excuse me. Uh, 15, it's illegal to be trans. Um, so there is a, a a legal aspect. and But beyond that, there's just a societal aspect mm -hmm. um, where while it may not be illegal to be LGBTQ+, um, it is not accepted. 
and it's one of those things that you just don't talk about. Yeah. Um, th- this is not a universal conversation. It's not, you know, we're not all at the same point in the journey. Um, and so you're going to hear lots of different initialisms. And the important thing is none of them are wrong. Yeah. And that's, it's not like there's a right and a wrong. There's just different versions. Some would say that, that one is more uh, progressive than another. And I don't know that I necessarily disagree with that. Mm-hmm. I think it depends what people are comfortable with. You know, there's members of the community that are very against the use of the Q for queer. Yeah. Largely because it's been a pejorative for most people's lives. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and then there's other members of the community that see it as a reclamation. So it's it's not a, a right and wrong. It's just varying degrees of uh, comfort. And I, I would also say that um, the the plus sign is really the important part for me <laughs> because it is a reminder that there are lots more letters in the alphabet soup than just the ones you see. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, it's interesting as we're having this conversation, I can look right outside my window and I see the transgender flag flying outside of Manulife, who seems to be a huge leader in the business community when it comes to advancing issues in LGBTQ plus inclusion. Mm-hmm. So, you know, let's harken back to something I, I, I came across when I'm doing research for this article. Um, you know, back in 2018, New York Times wrote an, an article on the ABC of LGBTQIA+. And so can you share some, shed some light on the importance of adopting the inclusive language and its impact on the, on the community itself? You know, I know you mentioned it briefly, but let's expand on that a little. Yeah, I, I think... I think it's important for people to recognize and understand that we're very much in an evolution around not just the language, but identity and understanding of that. Um, You know, for the longest time, it was lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender. Mm -hmm. And that's all you had. And then... For some people, those identities worked, and for some people, they didn't. So we started to see other terms come into play, things like pansexual, demisexual. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the the language is evolving. And I think it's important to allow that language to evolve. I mean, lang- let's face it. Everything is made up. All language yeah. is made up. We made all the words up. So we can allow people to make words up. And if that's how they identify, that's just fine. It doesn't matter what a person thinks. What matters is that we're respectful of one another. Mm -hmm. The impact on the community, frankly, is a whole lot of confusion. Yeah. There's a lot of people within the community who disagree with the evolution of language. Mm-hmm. Keeping, you know, I talk about this in my, my second book. We are not one community. We are a community of communities. When we say the LGBTQ plus community, what we should be saying is the LGBTQ plus communities. Mm-hmm. Because we're a bunch of communities strung together in one initialism. Yeah. And, and within each community, 
there is intersections of diversity and belief and understanding and we're not a monolith ever yeah. you know people treat us as a monolith and we're not mm -hmm. so i think the best thing we can do is simply to allow language to evolve and to use the language that we're comfortable with um both within the community and outside of it yeah and you know one of the things that as i'm listening to you here one of the things that that strikes me and it's it's a conversation that that seems to be evolving too is the fact that a lot of organizations still don't have an understanding of what each how each community intersects and yes we have the various dynamic if you will within the lgbtq plus community um, globally but you know how do you respond to organizational leaders that still believe in their systems as it is and and want to and and you know, and we need to accept an intersectionality where everyone can evolve and be who they are. Um, so how, how is you as a professional, I mean, in this work, you know, how do you respond to, to something like that? Well, I start by helping people understand that the initialism LGBTQ plus is itself an intersection mm -hmm. in that what we're talking about is sexual orientation. That's the L, the G and the B and gender. That's the T and the Q can be either gender or sexuality, depending on mm -hmm. what the person, how the person identifies. And it's important to remember that you can be trans and gay. Mm -hmm. You can be queer and bisexual. Mm -hmm. We are in, we are an intersection. And once they start to grasp that, then you can start to layer other aspects of identity into it. You can be, transmasculine and gay mm -hmm. and black and live with a disability and come from a lower socioeconomic background mm -hmm. and not have post-secondary education and 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 right and once they crack that nut to understand that we are not single-celled beings there's lots of layers to us mm -hmm. And they start to uh, grasp that a little better. Um, it's not perfect. I mean, still a lot of people look at us as one community. We, you know, we're just kind of a blob of identities. Mm -hmm. um, but if you can get people to understand that the, the, the initialism itself, and if you add the I, it's another layer yeah. of intersectionality because you can be intersex, trans feminine, and a lesbian. Mm -hmm. which people like at some points heads just explode. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, but if you can help people understand that the initialism itself is a, a set of um, intersected identities, then they can start to layer in other identities and see the impact because the experience, and this is the important part of your question, the experience of one member of the LGBTQ plus community is, and will always be very different from someone else's. So my experience uh, I'm gay, I'm gender nonconforming, but I'm white mm -hmm. and I present as able-bodied. I grew up in a middle um, 
income family. I have post-secondary education. I have a lot of privilege because of the body that I'm in. Mm -hmm. So my experiences are going to be very different from, uh, you know, a, a trans masculine black person, uh, who comes from a low socioeconomic background. It's just, mm -hmm. a, you know, vastly different experience. And yeah. that's ultimately what it's coming down to is you, we have to talk about the individual experiences. Yeah. And that's, and that's the most important part. And, and a lot of leaders need to fully understand that, especially those who are, you know, like I said, within the existing systems that have been tr basically the same for hundreds of years and have navigated through the system fine, but not understanding there are different uh, demographics that quote unquote intersect um, uh, with each other and how they impact how we respond, um, impacts when it comes to the need for psychological safety in the workplace, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, these are things that, that people need to think about whether, whether you're in the profession or you're not. So now shifting a little bit to actual capital, human capital and the economy and in itself with, with people, um, you know, with the LGBTQ inclusion, let us understand how does openness and acceptance enable the full utilization of human capital, for example? Yeah, so uh, to break it down a little simpler, what we're talking about is a person's ability to be their authentic self mm -hmm. uh, in the workplace and the impact that has on um their ability to be a productive member of society mm -hmm. and there are lots of studies that talk about this where um if a person is unable to be out and that can be about their sexuality their gender their sex assigned at birth whatever and there's lots of other you know identity clauses but if they're not able to be open about that identity at work, then they are masking something mm -hmm. and therefore they will not be as engaged. They will not be as productive. They will not be as safe. They will not be as innovative and creative. Um, they're more likely to leave a job there. You know, there's lots of aspects and all of those things has a cost. Mm hmm. So voluntary turnover in an organization has a cost ranges between 30% for a person who's more junior up to something like 400 plus percent for a person who's at a senior level of an organization, all because uh, they can't be themselves at work. Mm -hmm. um, uh, there's cost for a lack of productivity, a lack of engagement, of innovation, of increased safety incidents, all of those things have a cost. Yeah. And we don't think about that. Mm -hmm. You know, we don't necessarily think about what's the cost of exclusion. There's lots of research that will tell us the cost or the, the cost benefit of inclusion, yeah. of creating those exclusive environments where people can bring their whole self to work and, and the benefits that that will have on an organization. But if there's a cost benefit for action, there must be a cost for inaction. Yeah. And there's a, just as an example, I read this tip this morning. Um, there's a big hubbub in the U S uh, I think it's the 1 million moms group, which apparently doesn't actually have 1 million moms, but yeah. never mind. 
um, that are aghast because Target has um, Santas that are of different races and Santas in wheelchairs and and a uh, nutcracker that is holding a pride flag and they're losing their cookies. Well, there's a cost to that. Mm -hmm. and, and hopefully Target won't back down. They have a yeah. history of backing down. Um, but they're imagine that message to you know a person working for target not working for target sees it in the media hears somebody ranting about it maybe they're not going to come out maybe they're going to remain closeted that has a cost mm -hmm. inclusive societies are where people can thrive exclusionary societies are where people suffer yeah. And we as a society suffer. It's not, this isn't me talking about the moral imperative or it's the right thing to do, mm -hmm. the social justice agenda. This is about how we as a society suffer. Yeah. And you know, as, a, as you're talking about the most recent activity, of course, here in where we live in Toronto, you know, we, we have the, you know, the issue around pronouns. Mm -hmm. And, and of course, what happened in Saskatchewan where, you know, they had a, uh, what we call in Canada, notwithstanding clause to, to pass legislation so that parents can, uh, parents don't need to be told um, uh, about the, about the changing pronouns and stuff like that. And so, you know, these are things that are starting from young to, to now, to, to when we get older, when we're in or working for an organization. So it seems to me that at least in North America, you know, the acceptance is not progressing. It's actually regressing. Um, or it could be neutral. I don't know, right? I mean, where where do you think more work is needed in, in advocating or global acceptance um, in this work? It's, it's a good question, Andre. And I, yeah. um, you know, for people just listening and not watching i have a rubber face so i <laughs> react to, you always know what i'm thinking um I, you know i don't necessarily think we're regressing mm -hmm. i think there is a small minority of people who thanks to a former president uh feel empowered feel like it is their right and responsibility to advocate for exclusion mm -hmm. um the vast majority of people in Canada and the United States support LGBTQ plus inclusion. Mm -hmm. I think the last survey I saw from Gallup had it up somewhere around 76%. Mm -hmm. um, and that's overwhelming majority, not even close to the middle of the line. Mm -hmm. So that being the case, we are allowing a group of we're allowing the minority to take up all the space and make all the noise and push us backwards, or at least try to push us backwards. Mm -hmm. The global landscape is a bit of a different one, right? Because we've got so many variables involved. There's religion and some faith are very exclusionary when it comes to different sexualities and gender. Some are not. Mm -hmm. um, where you're dealing with countries that have, you know, a, say a majority Muslim population where the vast majority of the population are Muslim. 
and you've got leaders in that country who are very uh, anti-LGBTQ+, plus, mm-hmm. they're creating an environment that is very hostile towards queer people. Mm-hmm. Um, it's th- There's laws, there's all sorts of things mm-hmm. that go into... Um, the where a country stands. I mean, aside from those, you know, 65 countries where I will never go until they decriminalize uh, same-sex acts between two men, mm-hmm. um, there's also lots of countries where we just don't talk about it. They are, mm-hmm. they're not advancing. And it is not the responsibility of Canada and the United States to go and force our ways on those countries. I disagree with that fundamentally. Mm-hmm. they have to get there on their own. Yeah. And I also think that this is an evolution, not a revolution. It is not something that is ha- going to happen overnight. Mm-hmm. I will tell you that number I quote, and I quote it all the time, 65 countries. In the past two years, it's gone down by six. Mm-hmm. It was 71 two years ago. So we are making progress. Mm-hmm. Decriminalization is the first step. In Canada, uh, uh, same-sex acts were decriminalized in 1968. In, in the U.S., though, in every state, wasn't until 2006. Mm-hmm. So we're making progress. Um, is it fast enough? No, not even remotely. But I have the attention span of a goldfish. I want it done yesterday. Yeah. Um, it, but it's going to take time. And I don't think that we are helping by going to say African nations, most of which, uh, have sexuality is illegal. Um, and saying, oh, you need to change those laws because that's just seen as Western influence and they have to come to those realizations on their own. Yeah. And, you know, We've seen actual public shows of affection, if you will, um, where they've, you know, where certain acts or certain um, concerts have shown where they go to go to countries that are that are against, like in Malaysia, for instance, something I just randomly found out in that just this past August, a, a band called 1975 openly kissed at a concert where in Malaysia and uh, and. Uh, you know, what does this say about LGBTQ rights on a global stage or does it further backlash against a community? I mean, we kind of touched upon it, but what are your thoughts, especially when those countries need to come along, if you will? Um, and, you know, they're still, you know, they're doing something that people love is perform, right? So, right. you know, what do you yeah. say about that? You know, I think artists have historically pushed the envelope. Mm-hmm. Artists have historically challenged uh, societal norms, and you know I think about the Beatles as an example, yeah. and John Lennon, and you know there were some uh, there was a lot of pressure, and what that can do is then um, sort of a you know shift people's behavior. So if the band, and I've never heard of these, this group, so with Neither apologies to them, um, <laughs> but if, you know, 1975 did this and their fans saw it, 
is it going to change their fans' perception? Are they going to say, oh, mm -hmm. they they kissed, okay. You know, maybe it's okay. Mm -hmm. And then that starts to grow where people start to be accepting and, you know, people's attitudes start to change, which means people's behavior starts to change. And then Malaysia, you know, suddenly changes their laws. It's not going to happen overnight, but it, it, you know, some point in the not too distant future, Malaysia changes the rules and decriminalizes uh, consensual behavior between two adults. Yeah. Then, yeah, good on you. Yeah. Yeah. The only problem is the potential pushback, the potential yeah. backlash. And that's what, that's the unknown variable. Um, I think about, this is a very dated reference. We'll show you how old I am. Um, <laughs> Madonna's blonde ambition tour came to Toronto. I forget the year, but she was going to simulate masturbation yeah. on stage during like a virgin. Yeah. The police were called. Yeah. I remember that very and well. And you kind of go, what? <laughs> now we kind of, it's ridiculous. Like she yeah. may well completely masturbated on the stage and we probably would have been like, eh, okay. Yeah. Um, but at the time, the powers that be felt that was too far. Yeah. And the rest of society went, yeah, we're good with it. Yeah. You're the one that needs to change. So it's it's an unknown variable, and I don't know what the reaction will be. And does it actually hurt people, particularly LGBTQ plus people in Malaysia? It's not like there aren't any. There are lots of them, um, but they are hiding. And does it hurt them or does it help them? And that's the that's a, an answer I don't have. Yeah. And you know, since we've talked about predominantly local issues and global issues you know how do local organizations tackle this we've 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 talked about that at length now when it comes to people who are working for a multinational firm or who have and or who have global edi professionals working in there who are kind of struggling with with this concept you know how can leaders of those organizations or even practitioners or or whatnot from a global perspective, how can they ensure that inclusivity and employee support are consistent across different regions? Great question. Yeah. And the answer is they really can't. Yeah. So um, let's use Malaysia as an example. Yeah. And let's say you're a multinational, you're operating in Canada, the United States, Malaysia, and other countries. And you have a you know, policy of non-discrimination in Canada. Um, the law is different mm -hmm. in Malaysia. You cannot supersede the law. It doesn't work. It's not going to happen. Yep. So what you can do, though, is work within the law mm -hmm. and create mechanisms by which, for example, if you do have an LGBTQ plus employee in Malaysia who would like to potentially relocate, mm -hmm. you arrange for them to move to a country where it is safe for them. Obviously, you can't force that. You're not, you know, you know, moving people without uh, their interest. 
But at the same time, if you you can say, you know, we can't protect you legally here, but we can help you relocate to Australia or Japan or somewhere where, you know, your identity is not criminalized. Mm -hmm. um, you can have a code of conduct that speaks to um, the way to respect people regardless of difference in an identity that doesn't specifically call out sexuality and gender. But you also never know what local leadership is going to, how they're going to react. Yeah. I mean, I worked for a, a multinational and operating in 152 countries and there was no way of knowing the, you know, the managing partner of the office in, in Lagos, how they were going to react if we were talking about sexuality uh, in the workplace. Mm -hmm. And it's a risk. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's certainly not a risk that I want to take. Yeah. Um, so it takes a very uh, careful hand to manage. Mm -hmm. um, and th there's only one company that I know of, um, and I don't know where they stand today, so this is dated information, but IBM mm -hmm. uh, years ago had a global policy around sexuality and gender. And uh, even in countries where they operate, where it is illegal. Um, and they sort of said that within their four walls, it was a safe space. That said, it's also IBM. And this is mm. the piece that I don't think most employers really leverage is, you know, IBM employs some, I forget what the number is, but I want to say it's like 150,000 people globally, maybe twice that, who knows. Um, you're a massive employer in some of these countries. Leverage that, mm -hmm. where you call up the president of Malaysia or prime minister, or I forget which it is, and say, okay, you know, we need to have a chat about this law. We're not asking you to put in same-sex marriage, but we would like you to decriminalize consensual acts between men and women. Mm -hmm. That in itself is a movement that is valuable. And leveraging that heft of these organizations, you know, if we could erase those 65 countries, those laws, that makes a massive difference. Yeah. Um, and that's what, that's really where employers have the opportunity. You have to, you know, if you're going to operate in these countries, I think you have an obligation to help address some of those challenging issues that will go against your global code of conduct. Yeah. And, and I guess wrapping up here, um, you know, what, what lessons or advice would you give global leaders who are doing this work uh, to, who would like to be allies and advocates of people with people within the LGBTQ plus communities. And I'm saying that now because of something this is, I've learned from you. It's not a community, it's communities. So there we go. You know, there isn't, this is a tough question because there isn't yeah. just one thing I would say, if you want to be an ally, um, the most important thing is to do something. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I talk about this in one of my books, the difference between being an armchair ally and an active ally. And armchair allies are allies in name only. Active mm -hmm. allies are actually fighting the good fight. 
and we don't need armchair allies. It's it's not enough to say, oh, you know, I watched RuPaul's Drag Race and I'm <laughs> an ally. No, you're not. You're just watching TV. Exactly. Um, what matters is that you actually get involved mm -hmm. and what that looks like will change for the individual so for some people it might just be about putting up a sign that says my office is a safe space you can talk to me about anything and creating a space where people can come and talk to you about their sexuality and gender for mm -hmm. other people it might be you know going to the board and advocating for a change in policy or it might be um you know speaking out when you hear a transphobic or homophobic joke uh, you know there's any number of things but what allyship looks like for each individual is very very different based on people's comfort level, but mm -hmm. do something and yeah. understand that if we all just sit around and wait for something to happen, the former president gets elected. We yeah. need to be active participants in the world we want to see, uh, because otherwise the minority will take it from us. Yeah. It's that vocal minority has, that has been problematic for quite some time and, and they're getting, you know, they're getting louder by the minute. They're getting louder. You know, you know, whether it's whether it's this issue, whether it's um, you know, whether what's going on in the Middle East, these are things that we are, you know, this is what we're dealing with in in our world. And, you know, yes, power of social media it has has had its benefits, but it's also had its drawbacks. You know, especially when we're like I said, you know, we're letting the vocal minority have a voice and populate whatever goes on. So so yeah. So Absolutely. As we as we uh bid you for today, um little bit of a wild card thing for you. So what is the one book or song that gets you going every day? Oh, that's easy. Yeah, uh, I'm a big Lizzo fan. Uh, okay. uh I know she's kind of um there's some issues right now. We won't need to talk uh, about yeah. that. But <laughs> I and I I, there's a lot of songs, but if I had to pick one, it would be About Damn Time. Uh -huh, that song okay. always gets me going. Yeah. I feel good when I hear it. <laughs> oh, man. All right. Well, Michael, you know what? Uh, this was great. Uh, it's been great getting to know you. Um, you know, and as, you know, as we, as I spoke earlier when we, when we chatted before bringing you as a guest, you know, you were on Jonathan Ashton Lamptey's, uh, uh, an element of inclusion podcast and, you know, and talking about your book and whatnot, uh, your book alphabet soup. And, and, you know, and now that I've gotten a little bit more of an insight into who you are, what you're all about. Yes. As being an Aquarius <laughs> and, and having, <laughs> having a dog, which I did see in the background playing, playing in the back. Yes. But, they're, they're wandering around. Yeah. They're wandering around, but they behaved today. So that was good. They that did. Was good. good so, day. So on that note, uh, thank you very much, Michael, for, for being my guest and, and blessing this, uh, blessing the world with your knowledge, your experience and your advocacy for, for LGBTQ plus inclusion. Um, and so at the end, where can people find you? Oh, absolutely. You can go to my website, michaelbach.com, or you can find me on social media. I'm at the Michael Bach. Okay. Well, that wraps another episode of Global Conversations webcast, and I bid you adieu, and don't forget to like and subscribe and share the Global Conversations webcast on YouTube, Spotify, and every other channel uh, that you can listen to your podcasts on. So thanks, everyone, and hope you have a wonderful day.
Bye for now. 